Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and it is my great pleasure to be here with all of you today. I love studying God's Word with all of you women. It's one of my favorite places on earth to be. This week, we got to look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and I think we can be safely saying that 2 Samuel has taken a bit of a turn. David's life has taken a bit of a turn. Do you know how hard it's been over these last few weeks when at my table when we were talking about how amazing David is to not just go, no, he's not. You just wait. You remember Deb told us that those first 10 chapters, it was going to be David's triumph, and boy, was it. These two are David's tragedy, and from here on out, you don't get to turn all the way back. It's David's trouble. The last few chapters were packed with David's victories on and off the battlefield, all of which were enduring Israel to David. Not all of them, of course. There are some holdouts, but every chapter, that number is growing bigger and bigger. You know, it's not recorded just how much time has passed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of 11, but we know that we've had some time off in the battlefield, right? They haven't been out fighting because they're heading back out to start fighting with those pesky neighbors, the Ammonites. Uh, If you remember back um, in chapter 10, the Ammonites, they had kind of beat them down pretty good. There were a few that walled up in the city of Rabbah, and they were going to let them starve themselves out. They said they won't have food and water. They'll get sick. Then we'll go back and take them out later. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. We have a lot to cover today. So I want to look at just the first verse, though. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, and David remained at Jerusalem. One tiny little verse, but a lot of information that we can glean from that. A lot of information that's going to set up what's going to happen in the next few uh, verses of these two chapters. First, we know it's spring. Most likely, it was April or May. You know, they wouldn't have gone to the battlefield in the winter. It's the same reason we don't have outdoor weddings in February, January or February. The weather's not going to cooperate. It made battles so much harder. But the rains would have ended. Things were drying up. The spring warm weather was back. Great time to go back out in the battlefield. And it says, this verse says that the kings would go out to battle. You know, it was customary for kings to be on the battlefield. And a lot of times they were actively fighting in those battles. They weren't just there as figureheads. Even when they began to age, the kings would always accompany them to the battlefield. Even if they weren't actively fighting, they were there to develop the strategies and and to encourage their men and guide their men while they were fighting the battles. So David's army's heading back out, and they're going to fight those Ammonites. And we see in verse 1 that David, for some strange reason, has stayed behind at the palace. He didn't accompany Joab and the army out to the battlefield as he had done in the past. It doesn't say why, and we know it's unusual, though, because the author felt the need to tell us that. And I think it's going to tell us a lot about who David was at the time he fell into sin. Let's pick up in these next two verses. A lot is transpires in verses 2 through 5, so hang on. It happened late one afternoon. David arose from his couch, and he walked on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about that woman, and one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's almost like we started reading the beginning of a steamy romance novel. We were talking earlier, we need to write a screenplay and have a play made. It's like a, it's like a soap opera. It says, it happened. It happened one afternoon. What is it? Well, it's David's sin. It's sin. What it should have said is David's sin happened late one afternoon. You know, I read a story about a young a guy when he was a young man. He used to go to the church's youth group. And he said there was one older pastor that would come frequently and, and talk to them. And he always talked about sin. That was his key every time, sin. And he would wag, wag his finger at him. He'd go, sin ain't fun. And that guy said, all I could ever think was, if sin ain't fun, you aren't doing it right. <laughs> he said, because it's a lot of fun. And he's right, isn't he? It's fun. We don't go racing off into sin because it's going to promise to destroy our lives and cause us lots of pain and agony, do we? Not at all. We run into sin because there's a thrill. There's a rush, and it promises it's going to be fun. You know, I once heard my husband saying this to one of our children who was not living out God's best for them. Boy, it's an understatement. And he's talking to them, and he says, he said, listen, he said, I, I've done some things in my life, and they weren't God's best for me. And it was a lot of fun until it wasn't. And boy, is that the truth. Isn't that the truth about sin? It starts with the promises of endless, endless possibilities, but it always ends in exactly the same spot, doesn't it? It ends in agony, disappointment, brokenness, despair. I bet every one of you could add another word to that list of where it leads you. So I don't think it's by accident that verse 1 made it very clear that David was not where he was supposed to be. Was it? He was supposed to be on the battlefield, performing his kingly duties. Rather, most likely, he's kind of reveling in his recent act victories. He's got all these blessings of being the king. He's enjoying them. He's sitting on a throne of blessings that are about to come crashing down. Why is it we are so tempted to stray outside of God's will when we are relaxed and enjoying our blessings? The blessings he's provided us. Why in the world do we do that? You know, it's, it's, it seems like the danger in being so blessed is that we begin to enjoy those blessings, but we forget to enjoy the one who provided them for us. We forget to enjoy the one that actually gave us those blessings, and we become dependent and self-sufficient on ourselves. When life is showering with goodness, we often just think, well, look what I've done. I have accomplished a lot. I'm amazing. And when we do that, we just start pushing God further and further and further aside. And guess what? When you do that, what have you got in front of you? you got a clear path to step right outside of his will. Look at Proverbs 38 through 9 on your verse sheet. It says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? 
or lest they be poor and steal and profane the name of God. See, anything that's going to lead us to be self-sufficient will often lead us into disaster. I know that's true because it's a tested theory in my life. I should say it's a well-tested theory in my life. It's something I fight against all the time. I can do this. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anybody to help me. But not only was he complacent because he had so many blessings, I think he was also disengaged from his, his duties. He was idle. See, idleness isn't just the absence of activity. We all need that sometimes, don't we? We need to set those activities aside and enjoy some rest. But absence is better descri- um, idleness is better described as the absence of purposeful activity. Benjamin Franklin said this about idleness. He said, idle hands are the devil's playthings. And I think he's right. David was complacent. He was idle. And I think he was a little restless because of it. And it was a recipe for disaster. It led him into sin. He wanders up on that roof in the palace, quite possibly, to catch a a cool breeze in that hot afternoon. And his wandering eye spots a woman bathing nearby. Both of these things, very common practice. They would have gone on the roof to get the cool breezes. It was common practice for them to bathe on the roof. And it goes further and says that she was uh, bathing, purifying her in cleanliness. She was where she was supposed to be. This marks the first opportunity that David could have turned and walked away from this. He took that first look, and instead of going, oh, wow, I need to go back in, No, he just took that second gaze and he let his gaze linger a little longer. And we know that because he says, this "This isn't just a woman. It's a beautiful woman. He looked long enough to know this is a beautiful woman. And next we see that second chance David has to flee from temptation. He could have walked away and gone no further. Well, what does he do? He inquires about her. And what he learns there, he learns... She has a name, it's Bathsheba. Bathsheba, he learns, is the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was one of his well-respected military men. And guess what? He would have known that if she's the daughter of Eliam, that she is also the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's trusted counselor, his most trusted counselor. And then they go on and he learns the major red flag. They said, and she's... Uriah's wife. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. This guy, her Uriah, wasn't just any old guy either. He was in David's elite soldiers. There were a group of elite soldiers called the 30. Uriah was in that group. David knew Uriah. Finding out all of this information was that marker that David should have taken and run from this temptation. And I'm thinking about the poor guy that had to give him that information. Like he went back and he said, okay, he said, David, she's the daughter of and and the wife of. Don't you think in all this, he's subtly saying, David, I know what you're thinking. Buddy, this isn't going to end well. But he's telling this to his king. David not only learned that Bathsheba was the daughter, was a daughter and a granddaughter, he learned she's a wife. And he should have all, of all people known, this is a major red flag he should have turned because David knew that the law said that because of adultery, they should be, they should be put to death. 
He was going into the danger zone of sin. And isn't that how it works? When you take that first step, you throw these blinders up, and boy, you are just going straight for that target. God addressed all, addressed all these. David should have known the Ten, can, ten Commandments. The seventh one says, thou shalt not commit adultery. The tenth one says, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. But he also knew Mosaic Law. He should have known that really, really well. It would have meant that the man and the woman would be put to death for adultery. In David's role as the king, this was not going to change and make it easier or give him any special privileges. Because he was a leader of God's people, he was going to be held to a higher accountability for his sin. And yet, instead of falling on his face at that very moment and confessing his sins, David sent for Bathsheba and he slept with her. You know, I think it's interesting to note that the information recorded about this event in David's life at this point gives us everything we need to understand completely. The gravity of his sin, the chances he had to walk away from it, and we also know that Bathsheba wasn't pregnant when he slept with her because they included in parentheses, which is kind of random information to share, (laughs) that she was purifying herself after her uncleanliness. We all know what that means. It was her monthly period, and ladies, we know what that means. That's God's way of going, he, she wasn't pregnant. This is David's, this is David's baby. There was no way he could deny any of this. He had so many opportunities to flee from this temptation. Even way back when he set down his armor and stayed off that, off that battlefield, He chose to lay down his armor and step outside of God's will, and it's going to bring him to one of his greatest defeats in his life. None of us are immune to these temptations at all. None of us. God knows we're going to face temptation day in and day out, minute by minute. And he tells us what we do with it. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He doesn't say, in case it happens, it's going to happen. Be ready for it. Recognize it. Secondly, Ephesians 6, 12 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Quite simply, we're going to be tempted. It's going to happen a lot. So to resist those temptations, stay alert. Know it's going to be there. Recognize it as a temptation and read God's word and pray without ceasing. That's how you resist taking that step. See, when we step outside of God's will to get what we want, we're going to have to stay outside of it to conceal it. Isn't that the truth? That's where we find David right here. It's it's definitely the point in David's story that we're at. Even with the knowledge of Bathsheba's pregnancy, David could have chosen at that very moment to say, I've sinned. He He could have dropped to his knees and confessed. There would have been consequences. They would have been great, but he could have done it. And there would have been fewer consequences and fewer people would have been hurt. But instead, he starts to cook up these plans, doesn't he? He's going to conceal his sin. He's only going to conceal that sin from all those people around him that look up to him as the king. All those people that love him. David is desperate to save face and and desperate people do desperate things. And boy, does he do some desperate stuff. Let's look at the next few verses. I'm just going to read 6 through 11. 
So David sent word to Joab, send to me, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war is going. Just, you know, just chat, chit chat. Then David said to Uriah, hey, go to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go to the house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and live with my wife as you, as you live, as your souls live? I would not do this thing. So see, David hatches this plan that he would get Uriah back from the battlefield. And he's thinking if he gets him back there, he'll sleep with his wife and then he'll be in the clear. No one will ever know. So he gets him back from the battlefield. He gets that update. I'm sure Uriah's going, what is this guy doing? And, there's an, and then he says, David, go back to your house and wash your feet. Now that was their way of saying, go to your home and go back and go to bed. Because they always washed their feet. They walked in sandals all day long. He was telling him, go home, go to bed, and enjoy the evening. And as a soldier coming back, it would also have an added meaning, enjoy some special time with your wife. He'd been away a long, long time. It says that David even sent a present with Uriah, doesn't it? It's like he thought of everything. A little, they think it's probably some food and wine. It's like he sent a charcuterie board, a little good wine. <laughs> He's going to set the mood for David, getting back to the house. He thought of everything, didn't he? He's thinking, my plan is foolproof. But what he didn't plan on is that, that Uriah was going to have more integrity than the king of Israel, a God after man's own heart. This guy says, I couldn't possibly sleep in a tent when the ark is out in the elements and, and, the, and is in a tent and not in a, a permanent home. And, and my soldiers, they're sleeping in tents out in the middle of nowhere. How could I enjoy some time in my own home? I couldn't do that. But see, David is not a quitter. You know that about David, he's, he's persistent. So he quickly moves on to plan B, which by the way is only plan A with just a little bit of an upgrade. It's not much different. He's not very clever at this point. He tells Uriah, you know, you're right. You know, stay, stay here overnight, one more night. And then tomorrow you can head back out to the battlefield. It sounds, that makes good sense. So he said, hey, and while you're here, just come over to the palace and have dinner with me. And he proceeds to get Uriah drunk. So David, I think in his great wisdom, is thinking, hey, if I get him drunk, he's not going to be able to at all resist his beautiful wife. He's probably thinking, I wasn't even drunk and I couldn't. (laughs) So surely this one is going to work. He said he'll spend the entire night with his beautiful wife. But guess what? Didn't happen that way. Not at all. And he finds out that Uriah did not go home and sleep with his wife again. I can't imagine how desperate David had to be at this point. And he moves on to plan C. You know, at this point, um, we're definitely looking at where where I said, when you step outside of God's will, you'll have to stay out there to conceal it. David was willing to do anything outside of God's will to conceal his sin. Instead of confessing it, he first used the deception He thought, I can deceive everyone by doing this. He didn't deceive anyone. 
He didn't deceive God. He was only deceiving himself. He thought, I can escape the guilt. He's just piling on more guilt with every plan he cooks up. So he moves on because he's not a quitter to plan C. Plan C is the most devious plan of all. David thought that if Uriah's dead, people are just going to assume that Bathsheba's pregnant with his, his child. I mean, he's not going to tell them. Uriah's not going to be able to say anything. This plan would lead David to engage in yet another crime that deserved death. He was going to have him killed. Leviticus 24 in the Mosaic Law says, whoever takes a lot, human life shall surely be put to death. David knew these things. So he writes this note, though, to Joab, his military leader, and he says, put Uriah on the front lines. When this battle heats up, you know, just... Let him fall on the front lines. And not only that, guess who he sent the letter with? This is the worst part of all to me. I'm thinking, really? You have sunk to a new low, David. He has Uriah carry the note ordering his own death. He carries this unknowingly to Joab. And Joab did what he was ordered to a point. He changed it up a little bit. But ultimately... It had the results that David wanted. Uriah was struck down in battle, but so were a lot of other soldiers. A lot of other men died. I read that this would have been some of his elite soldiers that died. He lost a lot of really wonderful military men. In just a few days, David's sin had started with just a spark of lust, where he took a second look, and it had ended in murder. All that's left now is for David to know that his plan had been accomplished. And then he's in the clear, right? Let's pick up verse 22. Um, Let's pick up, and I'm going to read all the way to the end of this chapter. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out at us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at their servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, not the, not, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and another, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Not only did Uriah die, but a lot of others died as well. And there were a lot of others that were led into sin because of David's sin. He caused a lot of other people to to stumble. There were so many casualties left in the wake of David's sin, it's almost hard to even recount them all. He may have concealed his sin from the world, but 27 makes it very clear that he hadn't concealed it from God. God knew. It may seem at times that we have concealed our sin from from others in the world. We've walked past it. No one knows. We're good. But guess what? Soon enough, we learn that because our Heavenly Father loves us so much, He can't allow us to sin successfully forever. That's how much he loves us. He'll do whatever he has to do to stop it. And that's what we're about to see in chapter 12. You know, the last verse of chapter 11 says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
David was must, must have been thinking, wow, I, I've been very successful. I'm very pleased with this. But the Lord was not pleased with David, not in the least. I thought it was interesting, though, that it mentions the mourning period of Bathsheba for her husband. But do you see anywhere that it mentions that David shed a tear for Uriah? Uriah was one of his great soldiers. He was one of the elite 30. David would have known this man well. Most men would have grieved over losing someone like that in their life. David's heart had hardened to the sins he had committed against the Lord. And up until this point, we see absolutely no mention of David repenting or showing any remorse for what he's done. I actually got the feeling just reading the last few, he was just kind of like, okay, well, whatever. Things happen and um, let's just move along. Like he wants to get this matter behind him. He wants to save face and move on. But God had a much, much different plan for David. A plan that was going to cause him to be confronted with his own sin and led into repentance. He had work to do on David. You know, Scripture is filled with verses that tell us that our Heavenly Father disciplines those He loves. And He does it to mature us in our faith and to make us look and act more like Jesus. Look at Hebrews 12 on your verse sheet. It says, My son, and it's talking son and daughters, My son and daughters, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is is there who their father does not discipline? He's saying that's what fathers do. If you are left with that discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. Besides this, we have all have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. We shall not much, how much, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, talking about the earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. And he, he's talking about the Lord, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields that peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Oh my goodness, he loves us so much. He can't leave us out there in our sin. He's gonna come racing after us to to rescue us and and bring us back into his will. Discipline may seem harsh at times and we've all been disciplined for sin at one point in our lives. I know you know it. You know that it's hard to endure, but it reveals the depth of our Heavenly Father's love for us. You know, I heard David, David Jeremiah say this about our, about our Heavenly Father. He was talking about this very issue of Heavenly Father and being loved and disciplined. He said, we have a Heavenly Father, not a Heavenly Grandfather. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? All you women out there that are grandparents, you get it. You get it. You see, we're not going to be, as grandparents, disciplining like their parents are going to be. I'm very new at this whole grandmother thing, so I can't fully understand that concept. I mean, really, I've got a picture of my newest grandbaby. What am I going to (laughs) do? I mean, what is there to discipline in that right there? That is Theodore Witt, and he is amazing. And I was with him a couple weeks ago, and I was holding little Teddy, and all I could do, think, is... There is nothing here I'm going to discipline. It didn't cross my mind. I can report I found nothing. Nothing. He did that most of the time. 
And I stared at him while he did that. And when he was awake, I just made little funny faces at him, hoping I could get him to smile. And then when he cried, I rocked him to sleep, and everybody, all was well. And I can report, he didn't do one thing when he was awake that I even needed to discipline. No, he just stared back at me like, this woman's crazy. She's making faces at me. And when he did smile, occasionally he would smile at me. I know, it's gas. He had proof. And then either that or he'd make some really funny ones and he would fill his diaper. That's the best he did. That's the worst thing he did while I was with him. I found not one thing to do to discipline him. See, grandparent isn't going to discipline the same as a parent. And we have a heavenly father, not a heavenly grandfather. He's not, gonna, he's not that guy that's going to stare down and adore us and just kiss us on the head every time just to make us know we're loved. He's going to discipline. You know, the, the concept of heavenly grandfather kind of reminds me of some churches today. If you think about it, there are some churches that, that just focus on God's love. He adores us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to give us what we want and need, and not just what we need, but what we want. They spend most of their time focused on God's love, but it's not that kind of love that's going to, it's, it's the kind of love, though, that's going to allow them to remain in their sin. In fact, they'll change up Scripture just so that sin is not sin anymore, and they call it something different. And you know what happens when you do that? Well, you have nothing to admit to you've done nothing wrong. And when you do that, guess what? You have nothing to repent of or turn from because guess what? I haven't, I haven't sinned at all. And when you do that, you stay outside of God's will and you're never disciplined for it. Now you do have consequences, don't you? Because, because we know that our heavenly father, he loves us so much. He is not going to allow us to sin successfully forever. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, they will obtain mercy. We can avoid all the consequences that come with sin, and guess how we do that? Don't sin. <laughs> I know, but it's fun, is what you're thinking. Man, when you do Watch for those red flags, and as soon as you see I've sinned, drop to your knees and say, I have sinned against you, Lord. Confess it, identify it, and confess it. That's how you keep the consequences from being a long list. Catch it early. Don't conceal it. Don't hide it. You're not hiding it from God. I'm sure he's just face planning every time, going, please. When we do this, God's going to lead us into repentance for that sin. He's going to discipline for our sins. And then he's going to do the best part. He's going to cover that sin with his grace. It's beautiful. And as we begin to look, do that, we begin to look more and more and act more and more like Christ. David's heavenly father is about to confront him with his sin. Because he thinks David now cannot live in his sin forever and he needs to identify it and confess it. Let's pick up in 2 Samuel 12 to see exactly how he's going to address this. Let's go, I'm just going to read the first seven, up to verse seven. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and he and came to him and said to him, there are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man 
It says, the rich man had nothing, or I'm sorry, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was their pet. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the Lord and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has no pity. Wow. Wow. David missed it, didn't he? (laughs) You know, um, it's been a year now since uh, David took that disastrous step outside of the will of God. We can assume that the child born to them is just a couple months old, probably at this point. He's pretty, he's very young. David most likely thought at this point, I'm in the clear. All is well. Everybody thinks I'm great still. And God's about to have his say in this matter of David's sin. And he chooses someone, he chooses Nathan to do this job for him. Now, if you remember, Nathan had a wonderful job the last time he came to David that we saw. It was in chapter 7. He brought that wonderful message of the Davidic covenant. He talked about how he would care for David's family and his descendants. And now this guy is going to have to deliver some pretty hard news to David. I imagine Nathan's heart was heavy. I can't imagine what he felt as he walked to, the, to see him. And Nathan chooses to tell a story that's going to shine a light on his sin, maybe to kind of ease him into it. And the story involves a rich man who has lots of livestock, and that represented David. And the poor man is represented here, represents Uriah, and he had a ewe lamb. This was like their pet. And he loved this ewe lamb dearly, and it represents Bathsheba, who he loved dearly. The rich man took the poor man's lamb to feed his guests, and upon hearing this, David is incensed with anger. He says, how dare this rich man take the poor man's lamb to feed his guests? I mean, he's thinking, he had all this livestock to choose from. He even goes as far to say he should die for this. See, David insists that this man is punished according to the law while overlooking his own sin. He goes on, and he talks about... um, he conveniently could remember, couldn't remember that he should have died because of adultery and murder. That isn't even crossing his mind at this point. But he did remember that this guy was, should have paid four sheep back to the owner. That was the Mosaic law. If you accidentally killed or took and killed or whatever you did to someone's lamb, you paid it back in fourfold. Four sheep for every one that happened to but curiously, he didn't remember the details of the penalties for adultery and murder. It's often so easy to be like that, isn't it? We can be really passionate about other people's sin. We can watch the news and someone's done something terrible. I'm like, how could they possibly do that? Oh my gosh, they're terrible people. That is so evil. They're awful. And we haven't even looked at the own sin in our own lives. Sin that can cause us is easily to slide as quickly as David did into bigger sin. Matthew 7, 1 through 3 says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
David had this huge emotional reaction to the story. And I think Nathan's thinking, okay, this is the perfect opportunity. I'm going in for the kill. He says, David, you are that man. It's like, I'm pretty sure he's thinking, why didn't you notice that? He, he proceeds to lay out how this sin came about. He says, you forgot all that the Lord had done for you. He's given you so much. He showered you with his goodness. He, he would have given you even more. But you pridefully wanted something that, that God wouldn't give you. You thought you deserved it. And, and you despised God's commandments and God's word. Without a second thought, you broke those commandments like it was your privilege of the king to do so. And then to conceal that sin, you sinned again and again and again. Simply put, Nathan accused David of forgetting God's goodness and despising God's commandments. What started out as a crime of passion with Bathsheba ended in a premeditated crime that was deliberate and disgraceful. And many were affected by it. But ultimately, it was a sin against God. Nathan proceeds to pronounce David's sentences for those sins. Let's pick up in verse 10 and read just a couple verses. Now, therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbors and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but the Lord, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. See, Nathan goes on to tell him there's gonna be some consequences for this. And God says that the sword will never depart from your house. And he says that your wives will be taken from you, just like you took them from, took Uriah's wife from him. And as we continue studying over these next few weeks, we're going to see this sentence being played out over and over. David's family is always in conflict after this, and his wives are later taken <clears throat> and violated, just as he had done to Bathsheba. And we'll see that David will end up paying fourfold like he had declared the rich man should be repaid for that lamb that he took. Because we're going to see that his daughter and his son, Bathsheba and David's son, is going to die. And the, he has three more sons later in life that die. Fourfold. You know, what should our response be when we're confronted with sin? Do we get defensive? Do we start making up excuses? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? Well, we know our Heavenly Father, don't we? We know that He loves us. He's perfect. He's unable to sin. He's holy. So when we're confronted with sin, we can be confident that we're going to be judged fairly by Him. And He does it because He loves us. He loves us and He desires His very best for us. We can trust our judge. When you're confronted, confess it. How did David respond? We'll look at verse 13 in Scripture. Says David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to, the, to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. It's like the blinders are just falling off of David's eyes. All of a sudden, he's able to see the weight of this sin. I can't imagine how he felt when he said, I have sinned against the Lord. I imagine at this point, this man, a God after man's own heart, his heart was broken. It was broken. I, I imagine you could barely breathe at that moment. And I absolutely love the next part of this verse. When, when David 
finally confessed. He finally confessed that sin. What did God say? Well, one day I'm going to try to forgive you, David. I might be able to work up some forgiveness for you. No. What did he say? Immediately, I forgive you for your sin, and I've put it away from you. What a drink of cool water this had to be for David. His sins were forgiven. David's sins were great. They were huge, but God's grace was greater. And it's the same for all of us. Like David, we can confess our sins with great hope because we know that our sins may be great, but guess what? God's sin is so much greater than our sins. So much greater. Look at 1 John 1, 9 on your verse sheet. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. It doesn't say he might forgive you. No, he's faithful to do it. And later on, we know that, God, that David grow, grew to know this and that he it took it to heart because he writes Psalm 103. And if you look at that, I just put a few verses on your verse sheet. But he writes this later on in life. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That should be like a big, cold glass of water for you on a hot August day in Texas. When you drink that in, you know that you will be forgiven. You can trust him with that confession. Now, David confessed his sin, and in God's grace, he forgave him. But guess what? There is a nevertheless that follows, isn't there? Some say, however, however, Let's look at uh, the next few verses. Um, I'm going to start at verse 14 and just read a few of them. Nevertheless, because of this deed you have uttered, utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah bore to David, and he became sick. Then David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. All the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat with them. On the seventh day, the child died. That's a hard one to take. It's a hard one to, to figure out. Nathan said this son born to them would become sick and die. God in his grace hadn't given David exactly what he deserved according to the law. He deserved death, didn't he? he had and he, he deserved eternal separation from a holy God. David hadn't received that. You know, earthly judges, they convict the criminal to uphold law. It's the law that this judge has been um, sworn, he swears to uphold. But our heavenly father, he chastens his children. Chastening isn't exact punishment like, a, like an angry judge does. An angry judge is gonna give you what you deserve for your, your sin and you're gonna have to pay for it by staying in jail or whatever it is. And chastening is different. It's handed down by a loving heavenly father who uses situations to guide his children and guide them back into his will where they submit to his will and develop godly character. 
He's gonna use your sin to grow you. Why he did what he did with dealing with David, it's hard to explain. It's hard to understand. But please hear me when I say this. That does not mean that the death of a child is in direct response to your sin. That's not what happened here. David was in, in... being held at a higher accountability. He was in the line of Judah. He was in, in Jesus' line. He was dealing with him in his sovereign plan for David. We live in a fallen world. Sin is a part of this world. It's a daily event in this world. But God used this time when David's son was sick and died to lead David back into his will. And how do we know it worked? Well, verse 16 tells us that. He responded appropriately. Instead of cursing God and blaming God for his son's illnesses, David turned to God as he fasted and prayed for God to heal his son. David shows us in that, that he trusts God's promises. I trust you to handle this however you plan to handle it, Father, because I know that's how you do this. And he was gonna intervene, he thought he would intervene and heal his son. He, He trusted that God could do that. But on that seventh day, he died just as Nathan had said. God had forgiven David, but he was going to suffer a lot of consequences. And even in that discipline, where do we see David? And the rest of that, he's back worshiping God. He's headed back to do his duties and serve God in his will. See, even three more sons of his were going to die. There would be constant strife in his life because of this consequences of his sin, not just his family, but in his kingdom. But even as David suffered those consequences, God in his mercy continued to bless him within those consequences. And we're gonna see that all through the rest of this. The rest of 2 Samuel 12, which we're not gonna read for the sake of time today, records that David and Bathsheba went on to have another son, He has a name. His name is Solomon. We all know Solomon. Solomon became a great leader, and um, he would also be the one to build the temple in Jerusalem. Also recorded is more victories for David. Victories for David as he returns to the proper place. That we see him at the end of this, he's returned back to the battlefield. He's back doing his duties with his army, which interestingly enough to me, I thought this was interesting, he was safer out there all along. He would have been out there actively fighting with his soldiers, and yet that was going to be safer than it was living outside of God's will. You know, he had a lot of these successes, but I think that left a lot of scars behind on David. It had to. He had made some sinful decisions. I think it changed him forever. He's still a man after God's own heart, but I think that heart knew the heart of God even more intimately. I think he knew God's grace even more intimately, and I don't think he ever stops talking about it. And we know he's written lots of Psalms and lots of things later that tell of God's goodness. All allow those consequences of your sin to remind you of God's grace. And be quick to tell others about it. Tell others how you stepped out of God's will. God rescued from it. He forgave me. And and I've had consequences, but he has blessed me even in my consequences. People need to hear that. 
people that are afraid that they're sin too big and they can't come back. They need to hear what he's done for you in your life. We've all stepped outside of God's will in our lives. Some of us, we ran out there and danced and made quite a mess of it. Sometimes we've just tipped our toe into it. But guess what? In God's eyes, both of those things are sin. And they're sin against him. And there's not one worse than the other. It dishonors him and, and it makes his name not as great. The story of David and Bathsheba should remind us that we don't have a heavenly grandfather who's just going to adore us and kiss us on the head and make everything all right. So he's not willing to allow us to successfully sin. Not forever. And that's because our heavenly father loves us fiercely. Fiercely. And he desires more than anything for us to mature in our faith and grow to look and act more and more like his precious son, Jesus. When you step outside of God's will, we know what to do now, don't we? First of all, look for those markers. They're going to be there. And when you see one, stop. Stop immediately right then. Confess that sin and say, oh, sorry. And then repent and turn from that. And then just rest in knowing that God has given you a gift of forgiveness. And know that he's chastening you because of that. And he's leading you through that chastening back into that sweet spot of God's will where we're trusting his plans in our life and we're fully dependent on him. Ladies, that is a life that honors him and blesses us. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you have stories and people in your Bible that tell us exactly how to do what we need to do, that we can learn from. We, a man, David, who was a man after your own heart, Father, that you dealt with his sin. He made mistakes. You disciplined him. Father, you've blessed him even after that. Father, your grace is so great. And Father, I pray that we never think our sin is too great for your, sin, your grace. Father, our sin is great, but your grace is greater. And remind us of that all the time, that we will not fear you, but we will step into those confessions and repent. Father, we love you. We love your word, and we love your son. It's his name we pray. Amen.